You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode. This is part two of our interview with Dr. George Henderson. Myself and Shannon Rich interviewed Dr. George Henderson uh, a few weeks ago and the episode was so good that we had to split it into two parts. So part one was last week. If you haven't listened to that yet, please go back. Uh, Sets a great foundation for part two. And then in part two today, we're going to talk about Dr. George Henderson's athletic career at college and then how college and after college he gets to OU and how that impacted his life uh, and his family's life as well. He's lived in the same house in Norman since moving here in 1967. And we did the podcast in that house, uh, which being a real estate agent for me, that that's a special and, and all his family. And, and he talks about all that. He talks about the experience of coming to OU and Oklahoma and Norman in 1967 and what that was like. Uh, and then also um, Shannon brings some great crash questions about current current events, current life, what his view is on this on this time that we're dealing with right now and the things that people are going through. So please enjoy this interview. It's a great, great story. And yeah, I just want to, again, shout out, you know, the, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. We wouldn't be doing episodes like this if it wasn't wasn't with their help and their guidance. Um, so please follow them on Instagram at Oklahoma Hall of Fame. I don't think the, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame gets enough credit. Uh, and they deserve so much more than they get. So you can go to their website. You can see all the o- Oklahoma Hall of Famers. You'll know a lot of the names. You can go down to the, to the building, hopefully soon when it opens back up and tour around. But they do great things for the community as well. Um, you know, they've been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. And, and it's just a great asset for the state. So go to the website, uh, com, And let's get into part two with our episode with Dr. George Henderson. Well, well, from re- from listening to the to the, the voices of Oklahoma, that I'll link in the description for people can go to that because it's fantastic. Um, you didn't, you're an athlete. You didn't talk about that. Tell me about being an athlete as a kid. You ran track. I ran track. I was a sprinter. I, yeah. I was a little kid. Yeah. And if you're little and you're tired of fighting, you you better be able to run fast. <laughs> <laughs> I was the second fastest kid in East Chicago for my age group. And I'll tell you about that. That's a story also. I had just anchored the winning relay. I had won, we were running in yards then and not meters. I had won the 100-yard dash and the 220-yard run. Here I am with my medals going home at night and Naomi, one of my friends, said, George Henderson, fastest kid in Chicago. And I said, you better believe it, babe. I was full of myself. She says, how fast are you? I said, faster than a speeding bullet. You know about Superman? I'm faster than Superman, baby. I said, I can run past you, over you, around you. I'm fast. And Naomi just stood there. And she let me do my boasting. And in her own calm way, she says, you want to have a race? I said, I don't want to embarrass you. She says, you want to have a race? You know, girls just pick at you until finally you just have to just show them. I said, how far are we going to run? She said, you pick the distance. I picked the distance. I said, who's going to start us? She said, you start. I said, on your mark, get set. I said, go, and took two steps before her, and I cheated, okay. About, oh gosh, maybe about one-fourth of the way there, I could hear her breathing. Three-quarters of the way, she was even, and I stopped running. 
And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and we knew George Henderson's second fastest kid in Chicago. <laughs> but that did something for me. That was the beginning of me understanding sexism. But I understood it from a selfish reason. If we had Naomi on our team, <laughs> you would have won. You would have won. I could start, and she could anchor, and we would blow everybody away. Right. But she was a girl, and she didn't count. And I always thought that was unfair for some reason. Selfish, of course. That's why God gave you six daughters. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, then I said, you know, I, I didn't carry that selflessness too far. I said, but she would have those medals. I'd have second and she'd have third. Well, okay. Another thing that happened to me, uh, life experiences, I, I, I got lots of them. Uh, I was a slow learner. The norm in East Chicago and a lot of other places is that males, macho black males, beat up on queers and fags, and, as we call them. And we'd beat them up because we could. We'd beat them because we were considered inferior. When I became a serious scholar, the only book that I had in my house was the Bible. But in one of my friend's homes, there were lots of books, and he was gay. He became my friend, and we and he we shared he shared his books with me, and we talked about things. But he's my friend, but I never never acknowledged him until later. One day, George and his merry band of black haters saw my friend in the park, and one of them says, "Let's catch him and." take his clothes off and see what he's wearing underneath. Being the fastest, I caught my friend and I held him down until they came. And we pulled his clothes off. We threw them around the park. We laughed at him. And when they left, I helped him gather his clothes and he asked me, first he said, George, I know why the other guys did it. Why did you? And as I was helping him gather his clothes, we both started crying. And I said, never again will that happen to you if I'm around. And I kept that promise. But it took that cruel act that I did to my friend to dispel within me this gay bashing crap. But it was a painful way to learn that lesson. And he forgave me. Would I have been as gracious? I don't know. But he forgave me. The race thing, I didn't clearly understand it. And I got my first real message I was in the Air Force for two years, two months, 14 days, and a few hours. And I didn't go to Korea. I went to French, French Morocco, City Soleil, out in the desert. A secret, a secret radar site. So secret that the Arabs walked their camels all over the site. They knew exactly where a secret radar site. Okay. And the big things out in the desert, the big secret. Okay, so there we were. While I was there, we lived in Quonset huts. And we, the military hired Arabs to clean our huts. 
And all of the male Arabs were called Muhammad. We didn't even bother to ask their names. They were all Muhammad this, Muhammad that. Our Muhammad would clean our, 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 our hut and our beds, and we would come in and we would mess them up and say, Muhammad, you didn't do a good job, and we'd mess the beds up again. It was almost a, repre a replay of my, 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 my gay bashing things. I was part of that. And Muhammad, Muhammad, I, once again, George Trudeau for him, I was the last one to help him clean his stuff up. Muhammad says, George, well, you, you don't have to do this to, you, to me. You shouldn't do this to me. And he said, you, me, same, same. He was right before Muhammad came to our hut. I was the only little black kid. I was the object of ridicule, and I was the one poking fun at folks. He, you, me, same, same. I was a minority. He was a minority. I didn't quite get that message until years later, but it was planted there. Wow. All the while, there was a voice within me saying, if you teach the little ones the lessons that you learn and pray that they not have to learn them the way that you did, they would be better people. God didn't give me many gifts. I'm a lousy electrician. I don't do the grass well. In fact, Barbara will not let me mess with the grass. Uh, I don't cook, I, but I, I'm, I'm an excellent. I clean toilets and I, I do the dishes well. I put them in the dishwasher, of course. <laughs> but my creator gave me the gift of teaching. And the very first class that I taught as an adjunct instructor, I fell in love with this thing called teaching. I gave the lecture much too fast, but the excitement that was in me meant that I was doing something that I thoroughly enjoyed and I could do it well. I'm a teacher. And I write about things that I have been guilty of doing. People can change, they don't always change. But I teach so that others, using myself as a foil or as an example, perhaps can understand that if that old man could do it back in those days, why can't we do it in these days? I have seen courage at multiracial, multicultural degrees, and I had to come to this place called Norman to really appreciate it. The first civil rights movement in a college or university in Oklahoma was right here at the University of Oklahoma, the Afro-American Student Union. And I, along with Melvin B. Tolson, the first African-American professor, and Lydia Marie Tolliver II, were the advisors for those students. And they challenged racism. And I had an opportunity to, to, to be their, their, their mentor and advisor. But one of the most gratifying things that I had an opportunity to do was Ben Hart, who was an outstanding football player, invited me to a meeting of the black athletes. And they were going to protest race, racism within the athletic department. And there I mediated and was an advisor to them, and they did protest racism. And if the athletes could do it, I thought, as much as these this, the people in Oklahoma love, especially the football players, then somehow the others will find a reason to, to relax so they can keep those players 
I was, I, that was, those thoughts were going through my mind way back in those days. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It worked. Challenging such things as the, ba- the, the athletes couldn't have mustaches and, and, and beards, which was a part of one's manhood. It had nothing to do with whether you tackled or, score or, or put a ball in, in a rim. It had everything to do with appearance. Sure, they walked with a swag and they had their own language, but when they were on the field, they were all serious. But there were things that they couldn't do. They couldn't have a, a roommate with a person of a different race until these athletes protested. There were no coaches, assistant or otherwise. There were no, no one in the athletic department who was of color. And the young athlete says, we're tired of being just performers for white people. We're either going to be a part of this community or we're going to stop performing in this community. They got the message. Point guard, for example. Good gracious in a basketball team. That's a thinking position. For uh, Up until the time the athletes protested, the thought was that you can't give the, 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 the black guy the ball and let him decide who to pass the ball to. And when, quarterback. Good gracious. When Oklahoma, especially in football, decided they were going to do the wishbone and black football players, because they had to do everything in their segregated schools, did that wishbone better than any of the white players until we got some later. And we had some white who was really good. And it pointed out that if a person has talent, it doesn't matter what color they are. But the lesson for George Henderson was this. If the oppressor is white or black, it doesn't matter. He or she is still an oppressor. So let's not make race the reason for doing this. Let's just make, be honest about it. Life lessons, things that I learned. But what I learned that I value most was I learned how to reach a generation and next generation and the next generation of students and build something called a family in my classrooms. I exist outside the classroom. I'm alive in it. Because there, every single person has a voice and has an opinion. And we have some heated discussions in my classrooms, and we talk about them. And when we leave, we've reached some resolution. Early on, I realized that I was doing the right thing because the white students also wanted an opportunity to prove how committed and dedicated they were. The first black history course taught to Norman High students in summer was by white students in my class. God, you know, they knew, they knew more black history than any black kid on this campus because they did their homework and they taught it to Norman High students. The first group of students who went to tutor, my human relations students, we went to Oklahoma City and tutored low-income, low-achieving students of all racial groups. God, they did so many things. And while they were doing these things, race had nothing to do with their ability to perform. And we learned those lessons because we lived those lessons. I started then being honest with my students and I started telling them I love you. Not in a predatory way, but in an honest way. And they understood. Yeah, they understood. Yeah, sorry. Again, it's just, it's easy to listen to you. I just think it's an interesting thing that you've talked about this evolution of your, you've been really transparent about, you know, we were talking, like Mike said, before we got started about um, your daughter kind of calling you to the carpet faith about going out with a white guy and you having to say that you're uncomfortable and just the things that you've kind of talked about here, it makes me 
feel a little better about the fact that you're admitting to being human and, 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 and victim of, or not victim, but you're a product of your circumstances. Absolutely. But what's the evidence? There's clearly, when you tell those stories, it's hard for me, who knows you in the capacity I know you, as Dr. George Henderson from OU and with all the accolades that Mike said, how, how do you, those two don't seem to be the same. They are me. I have a limited number of plaques in my office. Barbara put it says, oh, you got that one? That, that's your wall space, no more. The rest of it is either in, the, in, our, in, in, a, in a storage bin or at the university. Every year that I've been at the university, I've had reporters ask me when they look at the plaques on the wall, those that aren't on the floor, which of these are you most important and most proud of? And I tell them, and I believe it, none of these things that you're looking at am I most proud of. I'm most proud of my students. And they're not on those walls. They're out in the streets, and they're in communities. And if I've done my job well, they're then teaching the lessons that they learn, that we learn together. That's the me. The other side of me is in my classrooms, I say silly things, and my students laugh at me. No, no, they laugh with me. We never laugh at anyone. We laugh with people. Uh, and part of my struggle in the civil rights movement as a leader on the national stage, we learned very early on, don't you let them see you cry. Keep your cool. That, when we said keep you cool, that, that had meaning for us in the civil rights movement because if you showed any crack, any signs of, of, of weakness and perhaps defaulting to the white position, you lose. So I'm the persona that you see. Uh, I created and extracted a great price for me because even my students, I say your colleagues now, you, you know, you have the degree. Uh, I'm George. I said, okay, Dr. Anderson. So you see what happens. I, my, my position as a leader is one of the loneliest positions. I understand Martin and, and, and Malcolm and the others. They had the same thing at a much, much greater level. People don't perceive of us as having human needs or being human at, in the same way that they are, but we are. Big boys don't cry. Damn it, I cried in this house so many times. And in weaker moments in my classroom, I shed tears too. It's a matter of degree. That's a good question that you ask because people are usually surprised when they get to know me. My children know me as, as, as George Henderson. My mother said, I named you George. I didn't name you doctor anything. <laughs> <laughs> but she also said, don't be an educated fool with your degree who think you're better than the other folks and me in particular. I never did except one time if you've got time for one more story. Yeah, we're on your time. In terms of my growth, my first Thanksgiving at Michigan State, I couldn't go home because, well, I didn't go home. And my mother called me four days before Thanksgiving because she knew that I wasn't coming home for Thanksgiving. And she says, I'm going to come and visit you, and we're going to have Thanksgiving together. I'll bring it. And I said, Mom, don't come. I didn't want my mother coming to Michigan State. This is my freshman year, first Thanksgiving. 
My mother didn't look like, she didn't sound like, she didn't smell like any of the white mothers that I saw going on that, ca on that campus, and I was ashamed of her. And my mother intuitively knew what I was saying. She says, okay, well, I'll, I'll just send it on the Greyhound bus. Because earlier I said, save the money and, and, and send it. Well, it costs the same whether it's, a, it's a, a basket or not. And my mother saw through that. She said, no, no, don't worry about it. I'll put it, I'll send it on the bus. She did. So that evening when I got, Thanksgiving evening, when I got a call from Greyhound, the guy said, there's a, there's a basket here for you, and it's sure smelling good. If you don't get down here, I'm going to eat this whatever's in here. And I went down, and he said, he said somebody must really, really love you to, to, to do this, whatever it is. I ate that meal, and my mother called me. She says, did you get it? I says, yes, Mom, it was great. And I, and I choked up, and I said, Mom, I, I wanted to apologize. She says, you don't have to say anything. I won't ever embarrass you. And we both started crying. And from that moment on, I was never, ever again, publicly or any other place, ashamed of my mother. That's my mom. She doesn't have to smell like or be like anybody. That was my mom. That's what pride is about. It's not what you wear or how you smell. But I had to learn that lesson the hard way. And I had to learn it with the most important person in my life before I got married. I rejected my mom. I didn't want to be embarrassed by her, and I was so proud of her after that, and I've always been. I'll never forget, she called me one day. She lived in Gary, Indiana. She lived, grew up, she lived not too far where the Jackson family, Michael Jackson, that family lived. So she got to know them, those kids. My mother called me. She says, George, I finally did it. She had gotten her GED. Oh, that's awesome. That was for her, she said. Yep. It's not for you, it's for me. That was my mom. That's great. Got me. Think about yeah. my mom. Yeah. Because you're far away from mom. Every time. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's humbling. My freshman year, I remember I thought my mom never, my mom was a single mom and she didn't manage money very well. And I thought she just didn't know what she was doing and I could do it better. I just knew if I had my own money, I would do it better. Yeah, don't we? we, we I, we're so wise, aren't we? I knew better and I had budget plans and I went to school and I had a flat tire and it was $43 and it threw, it threw me in a tailspin. That $43 meant I didn't have hairspray, I didn't have a party shirt. And like, but this whole, it's just very humbling when you go away from your parents how you think you know more. Oh gosh, you, yes have a $43 flat tire or you get all of those, all of, of those yeah. darn things. But you know, I was able to bring her here for the last 10 years of her life. Uh, she didn't want to leave. I tried to get her earlier, but she just, she just, it was her neighborhood. She knew the people. And when the drug dealers and, and the gangbangers had finally taken over the neighborhood, she called me. She called me at 10 o'clock at night. She says, I'm ready. And and Barbara had already packed the bags, and she says, let's go at 12 at midnight. We drove all the way. <laughs> Early in the morning, we got to Gary, and my mother was sitting on the couch in the living room with her bags packed. I she, will say Barbara is the hero in this story. <laughs> yeah. There no, continues to be a theme. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. I, my book, Cultural Diversity, Inclusion, and Justice, it was for women. Yep. It was for the strong women, because every problem that I talk about, women indeed are usually the last ones to be granted the opportunities and the first ones to suffer greatly when, when it happens. So, yeah, that's my mom. But, you know, 
bittersweet. My mother had breast cancer. And the doctor who treated her operated on, operated on her on a Friday night and sent her home on Monday morning. And her cancer metastasized because he didn't give her adequate treatment. But here, the doctor said, if, she, if we only could have gotten her sooner, well, she came. And she was able to see her children and her grandchildren. And for her, my mother, oh gosh, my children are my children, are my children and my, my grandchildren, uh, some of them have biracial, multiracial parents and so forth. We had a family portrait. My mother looked at the portrait and says, George, look at all of those beautiful different people in this portrait. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's my class. All of those different people in the family, in the classroom, that's my classroom. Do you got, so, seven kids? We had seven. Three of them have passed. Mm. And they? each time I wanted to die, I'll be very honest. After every child, I wanted to die. I wanted to bargain with God. No more. Take me. No. There was a reason for all of them, and each of them somehow seemed to have had a premonition of a shorter lifespan because they did things in a hurry, all of them. Somehow they just managed to just do things. I guess I've been allowed to live to see perhaps the beginning of the end of this oppressive world that I was born into. And I guess that's, I would have traded coming this far for any of their lives, but no, we have... We no longer have seven. We've got four now. Mm -hmm. Do they share the athlete that you were? Do they share the same genes? Uh, one son and a daughter. Well, like the, all of the girls went off a track because dad did. They were not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but they at um, least made the effort. Yeah. George Jr., we, he was born in Detroit, and I would take him to the boys' club, and we played basketball together. He got to be very good. Mm. In fact, he uh, was much better than I, and he would go, and he would play with the bigger guys. So when George came to Norman with us, he started in junior high. He was a stellar athlete. He was recruited to Norman High from university school by Coach Markwood. But Coach Markwood never let him start. We timed it. George Jr., Never played more than five minutes in any game. He was the second leading scorer. He was a leading rebounder. And the players on his, his teammates loved him. Hmm. Why did they recruit him if they didn't? They want, George was recruited to, to make the other guys look good because he could rebound and he could. Hmm. And, and he could. And he, he was a selfless guy. He would pass the ball, he, he did a lot of things. But the crux of it, in terms of your question, was this. Years after uh, the basketball thing was over, while it was over, I called him aside in this house. I said, I apologize for bringing you to, to Norman. If we had stayed in Detroit, you probably could have really developed your basketball skills and gone on to be a fantastic player. And George said, Dad, we didn't come to Norman for basketball. We came for community. And he never regretted that. And the players on that team were lifelong friends of his. 
and an interesting thing about George Jr., what kind of athlete he was, when the black kids from Oklahoma City would come and play Norman, they would cheer for George. That was the darndest thing. Awesome. And they would say, put George in, put George in. <laughs> <laughs> that was my son. Well, athletically, he could have been one heck of a. Yeah. He never, he never grieved over or, or, or felt bad about not having a basketball career. He was most proud of his friends, and they were friends for life. Mm. What would you tell your 25-year-old self today? Like you've seen, what all you've seen, even with what we're going through today, what would you tell your 25-year-old self? Adhere to, and don't abandon the principles that we had during the Civil Rights Movement. If you're going to complain and campaign against something, be a thing and not people. Don't demonize other people. And understand that even within the movements that you have now, nobody ever gets 100% of what they want. And part of winning is also learning to negotiate. And gradually, and gradually I know the youth are impatient. They want it all tomorrow. That's where we created these creatures, these instant generation creatures. They're our products. It took us 400 years to get where we are now. Good gracious, if it takes five or five or, or so more years, think of that. That was a very that would be a very short period of time, would it not? I would tell them also that it's painted on the mural. And the university has a Henderson Tolson Cultural Center. Uh, Melvin B. Tolson Jr.'s uh, last name and mine. And the south wing of the Henderson Tolson Cultural Center are two murals of a young George Henderson. And underneath the largest mural, I would tell them, go and, and, and see what I said uh, back in the 80s. Ultimately, the only race of any significance is the human race. And we've got to learn to live as humans. Either we will live together or we will die together. And there's nothing in between. I choose living. It's powerful. It is powerful. I think it's amazing that you're not, a, you're an Oklahoman by choice. Yeah. As we say, and your kids found love in Oklahoma. They loved the state so much that they gave you the opportunity to pursue a career elsewhere, but they would miss you. <laughs> they, they brought love. Yeah. And somehow, intuitively, they knew that they had to give Dad permission to be gone a lot. But our agreement was is that what, on weekends when I'm here was their time. But in Detroit, it was the same thing with Barbara. She says, the weekend's yours. Yeah, I got them the rest of the days. Uh, that... She had regrets about that because, and she had regrets here when I would take them. Because when you were daddy on weekends, what do you want? It's yours. Yeah. So all of the good eating habits and everything else, forget it because dad, you're going to go home with a tummy ache and everything else. But that was me. Here, the ritual, gosh, from my children when they first got here to their children, my grandchildren, on weekends with your with dad or grandpa, here's what happens. We're going to go to the university because he's going to be finishing up things in the human relations department. You're going to ride on the board. You're going to run up and down the stairs. You're going to yell. You're going to do all of those things. And then after after I've done my work, now we get in the car. Now, what do you want to eat and where do you want to go? It's your time. And it's their quality time. Right. And that's how, that's how I, I managed to, to do this thing. You don't have to be with children a lot. 
But when you're with them, it ought to be quality. Be present, yeah. In presence, that's right. I learned with my children to not take work with me. That was tough. Oh, that was tough. In fact, one, two, three presidents that I was an advisor to would try to reach me when on vacation and would only reach me after they would tell the switchboard persons at the, uh, the hotels or motels where we were staying, this is urgent, we need to talk with him because otherwise I didn't do any business. Yeah. Good was for it, you. Uh, good for you. Those are good boundaries. See, I, I learned a long time ago that if George Henderson died tomorrow, somebody would clean out his office, they would make arrangements, and a few years from now they say, remember when what's-his-name was here? No, no, no. If you remember me now, that's all that I can expect, but doggone, I, I, the work is never done. Uh, I, I kidded myself that if I catch up, I can stay ahead. Forget it. You never catch up. You're always catching up. And my kids said, well, you got a lot of catching up to do when you get home, but we got you now, Dad. It's great. I, I mean, I just the, from being from a real estate perspective, like the fact that you have all these memories in this house. Yeah. Like fifty plus years of memories, the when same house. This house burned. One third of it burned, mm-hmm. and our real estate agent, a good friend of ours, Jim Agar, he says, George. I can total this house and you can move into another house, meaning a better house, a bigger house. Mm-hmm. And Barbara and I both almost simultaneously says, this is our home, rebuild it. We're not going out to where Normanites would go. Mm-hmm. Because he'd already picked out a couple of houses he wanted me to look at. He said, no, that's not us, we're here. It was here where President Holloman came and sat in the pit and we, and, and we strategized. It was here that Angela Davis came. It was here that Dick Russell and Dick Gregory and the others, it was in this house. Right. No, too many memories. Yeah. It was here that my mother-in-law passed. It was here that my mother passed. It was here that my son passed. It was here that, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is our place. And it's also here where the kids would come and check out, college kids would come out and check out little ones because they missed their brothers and sisters. So we would have people checking out kids to go to the park and so forth. Uh, we would have the, 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 the girls coming to talk with Barbara, and they would just get in the kitchen and cook stuff and just talk. Uh, they call her uh, Mama, Mama Barbara. Uh, and it was important because our civil rights movement was basically run by females, and those strong women came and they poured their hearts out to Barbara in terms of what they were not getting. And she would always ask them, would it be worth you getting more and them getting less and us getting nothing? It was, the, the sacrifice has never been equal. Right. But there's no reason why it can't be and should be and must be. We talked a little bit about, about on the phone before, but do you think in your in our, do you think we're in, within five years of having some real diversity? Settle, do, tell if, me. If if we think of change in terms of complete no, but if we think of change in terms of the things that have happened, good gracious! When I came, there were only three African Americans. How many do we have now? When I came, there was no human relations department. I created that thing. Yeah. When I came, oh gosh, I can go on and on and on. There has been change. 
But you know, you need to be, I would tell you, that's what I would tell the kids. I would say, understand the history of things that you're trying to change. This policing issue, for example, came about at a time in which our, the areas in which we live were rampant with crime. And the reaction, considered perhaps an overreaction, was to over-police, but the point is that we needed some police. Mm -hmm. Because before the policing initiative started, there were areas that the police didn't go at dark, after dark. They didn't. We were left to our own devices. Now you want to dismantle this? I don't think so. Mm. Understand the history of something before you change it. So would you like to see, do you think there needs to be, what would you like to see happen with the defund movement? Would you like to see that there's some need for maybe money to go to social services or if you, training? If, if, or? You, if you do defunding, you're, you're either or. I think we can do both. That's a matter of priorities. I think we can, uh, we, 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 can, we can fund social services and education better. I think we can also start not funding big businesses to come into a community where they, after they uh, get all of the can from it, then leave, uh, having been not paying the taxes for all of the years that we, they, they said they're going to stay there forever. Mm -hmm. I think we can take a look at what's happening to, oh gosh, and forget the money part for just a second. When I was growing up, being a teacher was one of the most prestigious positions that one could have. Gosh, teachers were really, really, really important people, no matter what your racial or ethnic composition was. We've got to get back to that. Something is wrong when the individuals who are repairing streets earn more than teachers who are repairing mines. Creating, you had a teacher that believed in you in elementary school. Yes. I mean, you're a PhD from where you came from and it wasn't you couldn't see it so you couldn't be it you didn't have it in your family there wasn't a no model in, 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 with education but some a teacher uh, that shepherded you through that always, process yes yeah. and so i just think that's when you see the value i wrote that down the value of what teachers do and we don't value them. i would not have listened to anyone other than a teacher and that teacher in particular because she challenged my mind but I don't think teachers have that respect Not anymore. today. No. But think of what happened also in our schools. Good and bad of what happens. The biggest, baddest athletes, once upon a time in my community, when they entered the school building, they were yes ma'am and no ma'am, and yes sir and no sir. And if you were not, you didn't play. You don't disrespect people. Now we have a condition where teachers have virtually no authority. They can't stop anything, but they're expected to, to, to help create something for everything. No, it's a, we get what we pay for, I always tell my wife. Mm -hmm. We're not paying teachers very much, but we're getting much more than we're paying for there. Most people think that, that uh, since I have had two of my daughter's elementary school teachers, one in elementary and one uh, high school, I was subsidizing their teaching because they didn't pay them enough. They were buying extra equipment. They were they, all of the things that they were spent that we were, spent, we were we were paying for. Right. There was something wrong with that because once upon a time, teacher salaries allowed them to pay for those things, and it allowed and 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 they were allowed to teach. And therefore, they were not teaching for tests, they were teaching for competency. It made sure it made a difference. So I don't have the answer, but I, I, I certainly believe that we if, if, children are the most important creatures that we create. 
and yet we seem to value objects, houses and cars and you name it, more than we do people. And children quickly get that, they understand that. Uh, and the time, we don't pay teachers enough for the time that they spend. We pay college professors too much for the time that they spend. Well, you're on the record for saying a lot of rough stuff about college. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, but I, I think that's what's great about you is that it's clear where you stand. So I think that again, yes, yeah. Where else can one get paid more than you are entitled to and not show up at the place where you have an office? except the university. Where else if your professor can complain about not being able to teach this class because I don't know what I'm gonna do with my children at home when our secretaries don't have anyone, dare not complain about not having childcare, dare not complain about the, the, the perks and that professors have. Well, yeah, I speak, I speak my truth. You don't have to agree with me, but at least you've heard me. I don't think anybody's going to question that, Dr. Henderson. Yeah. Um, so without, speak, without speaking of any specific university, um, there are diversity and inclusion programs happening um, across the state, across the country now, especially what characteristics, because I've, I've read this and I've marked it and I've got lots of questions, but specifically what, if somebody's building an organization that is truly um, culturally diverse, um, not based on quotas or tokenism, but really based on trying to find the best people and respecting everyone's cultures. What's, what are some characteristics? What's the best thing you can do to build an organization that way? I'm glad you asked that. I, I tell you in my book, if you don't understand the, history of, the histories of peoples and why they find certain things offensive, then the rest that you're doing is theory. You notice in all of the groups that I talk about, I present some histories. Mm -hmm. We talk about, the university now talk about restorative uh, justice. That means when somebody says something that he or she shouldn't say, you, 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 you then say you shouldn't do that. Well, without any context, historical context, you, you can't understand why the word black, for example, has such a negative connotations had such negative connotations, and now suddenly we've, we've flipped it and it's positive. You can't understand why, for example, that very light-skinned people, no matter what race or, or culture that one belonged to, were indeed considered superior to the dark-skinned people. And you can't understand also why, what, what white privilege is and what black privilege was and is no longer. Uh, the Henderson have power and privilege, no doubt in my mind about that because I'm able to pick up the phone or Barbara's able to pick up the phone and reach somebody to reach somebody to do something about something. That's power. And to assume that only white people have it, I know lots of my students whose parents were white and they don't have it. So I guess what I'm saying is that if for a moment we could just imagine we were born all born blind and couldn't see, how would we have a diversity course? If you take the race out of it, because how we look should have nothing to do with how we're interacting with one another. But what if we're born blind? Our world is turned upside down and inside out, and I believe then the diversity that we teach will be accepting individuals however they come to us, in whatever form they come to us, because I can't see you, but I can hear you, and I can intuit you through your words. But we, do, but we do see 
I say, in truth, I tell my class this. I say, if there's nothing wrong with you, physiologically, you can see. And they say, yeah, I say wrong. I say, physiologically, if nothing's wrong with you, you can look. What you see is culturally defined. This becomes a mic. In some other culture, it just becomes a useless piece of metal. People, we treat people the same way. If there's nothing wrong with us physiologically, we can hear, but listening is a social skill and you have to listen. If there's nothing wrong with us physiologically, we can touch, but feeling what you feel when you touch, that's going to the heart. I guess in answer to your question, James Stevens wrote a delightful little book entitled, I Ain't Much Baby, But I'm All I've Got. That wasn't James Stevens. I'm just pulling your leg. I was like, I don't know. I was like, I don't know that book, sorry. I'm just pulling your leg. (laughs) Yeah. I will. James Stevens did write The Prophet. And the prophet spent a lot of time trying to find out the secret of good human relations. And midway through the book, he says, I've got it. I have learned that the head does not hear anything until the heart has listened. And what the heart knows today, the head will understand tomorrow. I think most people intellectualize other people. We have terms like uh, unconscious bias. What is it? What's unconscious bias? Because before it was unconscious bias, we had other terms for it. Right. But the behavior is still the same if it's hateful. If we focus on the word and not the, the behavior, we're missing the boat altogether. But in order to really understand, you have to feel it. And you have to, and empathy. We teach, good people teach others to be empathetic, but not empathetic in terms of the oppressors. Well, you can't change the oppressor if you're not empathetic to them and understands what in fact's driving them. The exercise that I give all of my classes, uh, they take a social problem and I said, okay, now as a team, I want you to decide uh, who you feel really, really strongly about and you can support. And they usually take the good guy. I said, now your true assignment is this, you become the bad guy and imagine what it's like to be the person that you now have decided that really have all these characteristics. And at the end of the assignment, they say, wow, they're human just like us, aren't they? They are. It's the behavior that you want to change, and sometimes we lose sight of that. If I was 25 today, I would look at this crowd and the crowds that I see. I said, when I started this thing, if you had the news, news media folks that had pictures, they were almost all black. Now look at those pictures. Whoa, in some communities, there are more whites than blacks. There are more browns than, than blacks. There more. See, what, what has happened is that it's always been there, but now we have more people who've come out to say, I stand with you. And that's different. But standing with you is not going to undo, in, in answer to your question, is not going to tomorrow make everything go away and become better. And be careful what we wish for if you defund police. As one individual says, he wasn't kidding when he, she wasn't kidding when she said defund it. She means absolutely get rid of it. No. We had situations where we had police, but they didn't come into our neighborhoods and allowed us to kill one right. another with, with impunity. 
community policing should be tried. Not enough community policing is going on in the United States. You, you, you're not going to try something, but you're going to say it's worthless. And community policing requires that individuals get out, they walk the community, they know the people in the community, and on and on and on. That's a process. I would ask for that first. And of course, an important thing that they're asking for now is saying very important. No individual should be allowed to, with impunity, exercise more force than necessary to, uh, to subdue a person. I don't care what your job is. Yeah, especially if they're out of harm to themselves yes. or someone else. And if I'm running from you. Yeah. What? Catch me later. We can get, yeah. Yes. But then but the, the argument, the counter argument is, well, you don't know what he has in his hand. Come on. When you know that your job says that you use only as much force as necessary. Well, maybe you admit that I'm not as fast as the guy who's running. Catch him the next day. Right. Don't kill him today. Right. All of these things we talk about in my class, and they have no meaning if I can't pull from within myself some significance of what I consider humane relations. That's what that book is about. I wasn't going to write my life story, but in many ways, in the two books that I consider most important in this is uh, Race in the University and Cultural Diversity, Inclusion, and Justice. I've done exactly that. In the first chapter where I say, this I believe. This I believe, yeah. It's out there. And the, the reason that I do that in the first chapter, I want you to understand what my position is. I'm not going to pretend that I don't have values. I do. But I will, in fact, respect your values. And a lot of people will be unhappy because I then counter some of my own arguments with why other people behave as they do. That's what's called human relations. Hi, do you have any more? Um, I don't want to help. Yeah, I, I, have, I have two quick ones. Sure. And then one of them is, um, in this I believe, I was, one of the first things I was going to ask you is you talk about the beginning of bigotry and, and how it can break down and things that we can do. And I guess someone that's looking in and trying to listen and, and, and recognizes my privilege, how do you sincerely... How do you sincerely form more friendships of people with people of color? Because I feel like now you're, my my friends that are black are like yeah, everybody's calling me, going saying, talk me through what all's going on. And so they're, but how how do you how do you expand your circle? Sincerely. I have a natural way of expanding. I'm a teacher. I get them. Uh, I get them because some of them say I need the course to graduate. I get them because it fits the hour that they work. I get them because they're there in the room and now they're part of my circle and we act. However they come to me, I expand my circle. Sometimes it's, it's artificial. And it is artificial to walk up to someone and start a conversation, but we do it all the time. We do it on airplanes when we're flying some places and we don't know the person sitting next to me so we strike up a conversation if we can do it on an airplane we're still on a big plane called life mm -hmm. we can do it with the person standing with us on this journey called walking across the street or just a hi how are you doesn't always mean that they're going to reciprocate but it means that at least you tried right I am forever impressed with one flew over the cuckoo's nest where McMurphy, uh, and he's in this insane asylum. 
and he made, make, he wages a bet that I'm going to take this water cooler and I'm going to throw it out that window and we're going to escape. They make the wager. He he tries. He tugs on that uh, water cooler. He tugs. He can't. He can't lift it. And they laugh at him and they collect their money. And he said, "At least I tried." We don't always lift those water coolers, but we ought to at least try. And if the water cooler is bigotry, at least try. It's well said. Does that make any sense? It does. Yeah. The last thing I have is you were inducted before I came to the Hall of Fame. So tell me about what that meant to you to, be, to receive Oklahoma's highest honor. I started out by saying to my mother, we made it, Mom. Top of the world. Not really the top of the world, but at least at the top of the community. And then I explained what I meant by that, that I got there with a lot of help. Individuals who may never get there. But the point is, a statement was made, and now I have another platform. For me, the Hall of Fame meant it was a long journey from poverty to affluence from racial segregation to integration because we truly are integrated into this community. And most people talk about integration, they never lived it. I've lived it now. It's a long journey from hate to love. And I've learned, as my mother would tell me every day, I love you, I've learned when I tell other people I love you that I mean it and what that means to me. And so induction into the Hall of Fame gave me an opportunity to say why I love Oklahoma. Not for the bad things or the bad people or the bad deeds, but for the good things and the good people. And we come together on a night and we, we celebrate the good things. The bad things are still out there, but tonight, on that special night, we celebrated the good things. And for me, although my mother wasn't there to see it, we made it. She got to come here and see you be Dr. George Henderson. Oh, You're kind yeah. of a big deal. <laughs> Tell me about it. She got it. to see it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she never forgave me for not going to Tuskegee, but she... <laughs> she, <laughs> she came to Norman, she realized it was oh, okay. Yes. That's oh, hilarious. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's awesome. Um, I want to, last question, you're a huge Sooner fan. That's what yeah, I remember. This yes. Is, you know, and you came because you wanted to meet. Prentice um, Club, which I got to right. meet, and we became very close friends. What's, what's OU, what, what, present day football, what are you thinking right now with the season coming up? And how's that, what's your, what is your fandom today compared to what it was back then? I what's guess that's the question. <laughs> I'm not willing to risk any life for uh, for a stupid football game. Yeah. Uh, sure, you're going to lose money. People lose money every day. In fact, I just read the paper today where the, one of the largest uh, oil companies filed mm -hmm. for, uh, for bankruptcy. Hey, you got a big hole there. Acknowledge it. But don't, don't dig that hole deeper with the bodies of young men and young women. Game's not worth it. Yeah. The game of game is not worth it. The game of life is worth much more. 
And I'm a huge football fan. But I'm really more of a basketball fan than a football fan. In Indiana, we play basketball. Football is what you do waiting for basketball to start. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's big words since we are in Oklahoma. Uh, so, OU basketball is your basketball team mm-hmm. then? Or, okay. Yeah, we, I, I met the, the George Lane Cross in a basketball because Barbara and I would be the, the very few of the faculty was going to basketball, and mm. I was really one the loudest faculty member there cheering and and commiserating. And President Cross asked his uh, his aide, "Who is that? Who is who is that person down there?" And he said, "That's that's Professor Henderson who knew us." And, and George, uh, President Cross, invited Barbara and me to sit back into his space with him, and that's how the relationship began. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a basketball fan. When a crowd of 1,200 was really a large crowd on this campus. Oh, yeah. And to show you how silly things are, we built the uh, Lloyd Noble for a basketball player who never played a game here. Really? Yep. Huh. I don't know that I know that. We wanted to keep our star basketball player, and he got a pro contract, and he left before the stadium was built. He never played a game here. Interesting. Wow. It's a game. Yeah. There's a lot of things that just being an athlete that, you know, just teach you life. You know, just grow. You grow up being a golfer. You grow up a lot quicker being yes, an you athlete. Do. Right. You almost have to. Mm. Uh, you, you, you understand that you appreciate winning the game, but you also appreciate playing it well. Mm. And you realize that winning isn't the most important thing about the game. Winning for me was just being able to run. And other kids who were faster than me, I want to believe that they ran as fast as they could. I did too, and the outcome was the outcome, but at least I was there. I did it. Yeah. I had that itch, and I scratched it. I love hiring athletes, especially if they played in college at any level, because I feel like they have a discipline. They've been able to manage multiple things mm-hmm. so they can keep their grades and they can perform and they can't do both. And it does show you a certain level of um, commitment. Outside There's a hierarchy of learning, too. I think the non-major sport athletes are better scholars because you know that there, there has to be life after what you're doing here. Right. right. The others seem to think when, oh, gosh, uh, Barry Switzer and, and, uh, and two subsequent coaches would always ask me to talk to the freshman athletes and tell them about life, especially the minorities and what it was. And I would say, you know, guys, that less than 2% of you are going pro, and they're all smiling. And they're thinking, I feel sorry for those other guys. Yeah. And because of that, yeah. they didn't focus on the scholastic part of it. Right. The smart ones do. Mm-hmm. Just a game. Yeah. So I'm not willing in, that, in terms of the question about playing football. So we don't play. There was a year when we didn't go to the Olympics either, when President uh, Jimmy Carter said, we're not going. And, and we're, the world didn't end. Well, hey, I also love the arts, but I just found out today that uh, the plays are not going this year. Good. It's just a play. I wish we could view football the same way. Yeah. It's revenue. But think about it. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Their reason for not doing it is that if I have to space it, I don't make enough money. If you have to space in these big stadiums, you're not going to make enough money. 
So what was it for? You make enough money perhaps to pay the expenses, but you still have that hole that you were trying to fill. Yeah. Right. That's the long and the short of it from George's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this if is only the... you would just say what you think and tell people. Right. I'm working on it. I'm really working on it. I'm trying. <laughs> uh, um, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, just to have this opportunity um, and just hear your stories uh, and sit with you in this house and just to, you know, be Would you present please with give you. them a link to my book? Absolutely. 100%, yeah. All 28 of them. <laughs> is, there, is there a new one coming? This, mm-hmm. is the, this is the latest one. This, this is. is the latest this one. Is the latest okay. One. So, I just got it. I just ordered it and got it right before. Okay. Oh, and I need to do... If you, are, you, are we finished here? No, you, I mean, okay. we can be. <laughs> yeah, no, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um just you know just so many stories and so much wisdom that uh i told you my life is stories within stories yeah it's it was awesome and uh, when i peel it back i see me mm-hmm. and i understand me better yeah that's what i think everyone needs to do right take a layer take it take some time peel back some layers and really figure out who they are yeah that's well said and what they stand for but um yeah for everyone listening we're gonna finish this up otherwise we could talk for another <laughs> three or four hours yeah. but um Absolute pleasure, and we'll post all the links we mentioned down below. Uh, thank you again, Dr. George Henderson. Absolute pleasure. Um, for everyone listening, thanks so much, and we'll catch you next episode. Cheers. This podcast was presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, who've been telling Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Catch you next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.